This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing a much discussed paper on psilocybin for treating alcohol use disorder. John, how are you? I'm doing great today. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. So, John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine recently? So I had an interesting uh, case the other day that kind of led to an interesting discovery from my standpoint. I was working at uh, my kind of offsite St. Max's clinic, and I had a patient that was out of state transferring into our state, and they did not have access to Suboxone due to the transfer. So they were, they were new. Their script was about to run out. They were in crisis. And as you know, uh, rural areas of this country tend to be more predominantly affected with opioid use disorder. And they were in a very rural site where we couldn't get the telehealth visit started and they had no ability to drive. So I had to convert the visit to a, a telephone visit. And after discussing it and kind of reviewing his outside records, I prescribed him Suboxone to a Walmart pharmacy. And I was very surprised that Walmart was refusing to fill my prescription, which has never happened whatsoever. And actually, after speaking with the pharmacist, I was informed that Walmart uh, does not fill telephone or telehealth controlled substances. And when they found out I was affiliated with a actual physical office, they did fill the prescription. But I didn't realize that Walmart and CVS had actually come out with a statement last spring um, where they were refusing to fill controlled substances issued from telehealth startup companies that didn't have in-office locations. And the two that they kind of specifically named, um, and I'm not calling anyone out here, but the two that they refused to fill in their initial statement was uh, Cerebral Incorporated and Dunn Health, which are two ADHD startup telehealths where you can go online, see a prescriber and get Adderall and stimulants for ADHD and diagnose the day of your appointment. So I thought that was really interesting that I guess that retail pharmacies were kind of somewhat determining who and when they were filling from, even if they did have a legitimate DA or DAX. Well, that is interesting. You know, this came up today in the office. So we sometimes have pharmacists push back on our prescriptions, of course. And for our normal prescriptions, sure, pharmacists will let me know all the time if they see there's a problem. They'll pick up a drug interaction I don't see, or they'll wonder why the patient will have filled, you know, three scripts each a month worth all in the span of a week. And they'll let me know. So the pharmacists are tasked with finding problems with the prescriptions. And I'm always happy when they call me because usually they're pretty right. But with the controlled substances, sometimes they maybe seem a little judgy, I guess. But I don't totally blame them. And I don't blame Walmart because a lot of pharmacies, you know, big chains have been held liable for their part in the opiate epidemic. You know, they filled, unquestioningly filled dangerous scripts from doctors who are obviously just drug dealers. And they actually got called to the carpet for this. So I can see how Walmart's saying that they'll refuse to work with doctors who they think are sketchy and not practicing, you know, practicing up to standards of care. Yeah. So, you know, I think Walmart gets a lot of uh, bad press sometimes, but we love Walmart at my house. And just one more reason to, to get my Walmart pickups. Uh, thank you, Walmart. Thank you, Walmart, for uh, for having some integrity here. So what about you, Sonia? What are you thinking about this week? Well, gosh, I was thinking about gabapentin. So it seems like we in primary care prescribe gabapentin for everything now. We prescribe gabapentin for everything that we used to prescribe benzos or opioids for. So all pain, any kind of anxiety, now for insomnia, everyone basically is on gabapentin. 
And in fact, gabapentin was the seventh most prescribed drug in the U.S. in 2019, which is the last year where there's data on this. So I personally am not comfortable with this at all. So the evidence for prescribing gabapentin is very weak, even for its FDA-approved indication, which is neuropathic pain. Only about 35% of patients see a 50% reduction in pain. So that's pretty pathetic. So a 50% reduction in pain and only a third of patients even get that. For all other types of pain and anxiety, gabapentin has been pretty much proven ineffective when it's tested in randomized controlled trials. And while it rarely causes overdose on its own, it enhances the respiratory depression caused by opioids. And so the reason I was thinking about this is there's a new report from the CDC, the MMWR report, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, that shows that gabapentin is now implicated in one of 10 opioid overdose deaths. So that's huge. And people have no idea that gabapentin can be so dangerous. So John, which of your patients are taking gabapentin? Here's a moment of truth. Do you prescribe a lot of gabapentin or Lyrica, which is pregabalin? And why? What do you use it for? I'm not going to lie. Looking in the mirror here, I probably prescribe more than I'm, I'm proud to say. I, I think that the at least the majority of my patients, I think they've come to me and they basically, I guess, two groups. One is the fibromyalgia patients. I feel like I have a fair number of those patients. Most of them feel that there's some degree of benefit from it. I do believe that there's some mild evidence there. And then I think like in chronic pain, even non-neuropathic pain, unfortunately, I do have some patients that are they're still on it. Sometimes I use it as an adjunct for patients that are benzodiazepine dependent in the past for anxiety. I know the evidence there is also weak. I think the problem that I, that I think why this is used so frequently is I think many of us view it as like the lesser of the two evils, right? It's filling a, a, a niche that is filled with things that we feel are very bad to prescribe. I think we get a lot of feedback about benzodiazepines, a lot of feedback about opioids. I think we feel that this is safer at least that's a feeling. It doesn't mean it's reality, but it is a feeling. And, and the truth is, I always kind of talk to patients about this when they come to see me about pain and they want just a pill to fix their pain. You know, we really have like three flavors of pain medication, really, right? Or four, maybe, if you count them. It's, it's Tylenol. And I think we have lots of studies showing now that that's no more effective than placebo in most arthritic conditions, which although we still subscribe Tylenol all the time. NSAIDs and NSAIDs seem to come out as the, the leader in terms of effect in most studies, although I think all of us have a lot of patients with, with NSAID contraindications, opioids, which we try not to prescribe, and then these anticonvulsants. So I think it's, it's a lack of tools in the toolbox. Yeah. And I'll, you know, you're not alone. I actually ran a report through our EMR to see how much gabapentin I prescribe. And for me, gabapentin is the 10th most common medication taken by my patients. So Above gabapentin, fortunately, are some chestnuts like metformin, aspirin, and atorvastatin. I think one of the ACE inhibitors was up there. Albuterol was up there. But gabapentin came in at number 10 for medications that my patients are prescribed. So that's a little embarrassing. I guess I prescribed Did you run less. the report for me? I'll do that. We can report back on the <laughs> no, next no, episode. No, don't run that report. Please stop. <laughs> yeah. So I will say, though, I've been pulling back on gabapentin. Many of my patients do like it, though. Now, whenever I see a patient with gabapentin on their med list, I ask them why they're taking it. Does it actually help? Do they have side effects from it? Would they like to stop it? And I've had a bunch of patients who have it on their med list but aren't really taking it anymore because they did have side effects, dizziness. Most of people, it makes them too sleepy or dizzy or they fall. But a lot of people actually really like it. They say, no, I need that. Definitely need that, even if it's in a little bit of a nonspecific way. 
It is interesting. The number of people that have nerve pain and neuropathy for, for no real apparent reason at 25. I feel like I got a lot of those. Well, a lot of the, this has come up with my patients, but also with the residents. They say, isn't all pain nerve pain? You know, I, I'm like, well, it's low back pain. And the patient will say, well, isn't it the nerves that cause the low back pain? And touché. I don't have a, I know, right? Touche, doctor. Touche. Touche. You got me. Yeah, we got a really cool article, I think, tonight. At least it's it's an interesting one to discuss. Uh, maybe not uh, super practice changing for all of us, but interesting discussion points. So the article is called Percentage of Heavy Drinking Days Following Psilocybin-Assisted Psychotherapy Versus Placebo in the Treatment of Adult Patients with Alcohol Use Disorder. And it was from JAMA Psychiatry in 2022. So background here a little bit. The proposed mechanism of action for psychedelic-assisted treatment includes serotonin 2A receptor activation, alterations in neurotransmission, intracellular signaling changes, epigenetic alterations, and altered gene expression, which appears to enhance neuroplasticity in learning. Magnitude of observed therapeutic changes have been shown to be influenced by the subjective experience of subjects under the influence of psychedelics. Over the past two decades, there has been increasing clinical interest in the use of psychedelics for the treatment of neuropsychiatric conditions. Six randomized controlled trials were performed between 1966 and 1971 and revealed that participants with alcohol use disorder receiving LSD demonstrated remission at twice the rate of MASH controls. In 2015, an open-label study over 32 weeks demonstrated tolerability and large reductions in alcohol consumptions for patients with alcohol dependence treated with psilocybin. So that's kind of the background of why it's like such an area of interest. And I'm not sure, Sonia, did you get a lot of questions about patients asking you about this? I feel like I get a fair number. Well, definitely I get some. I mean, my patients tend to be older and maybe more conservative, so they're not as interested in thinking about this or experimenting with psychedelics. So they don't really want to ask about it. But I get a lot of questions from like friends and family about it. And, you know, here where we live, we're close to the Center for Psychedelic Research at Johns Hopkins. So there's a lot of local news about psychedelics. So yeah, I get a lot of questions about it. And it's, it's interesting that they've been doing, there were randomized control trials on it in the 60s. And then seems like a bit of a gap in research until just recently. Yeah, it definitely seems like a blast from the past. So what is the clinical question here? So the clinical question that this paper tries to answer is, does psilocybin-assisted treatment improve drinking outcomes in patients with alcohol use disorder relative to outcomes observed with active placebo medication? So a little bit about how they did this study and the methods. So the population inclusion criteria was participants aged 25 to 65 years of age with a diagnosis of alcohol dependence, and that was ascertained via a structured clinical interview according to the dsm 4 and they had at least four heavy drinking days during the 30 days prior to screening. And that was defined kind of classically as we define in most trials, five plus drinks per day in men or four plus drinks per day in women. They excluded patients with major psychiatric and drug use disorders, hallucinogen use in the past year, 25 or more lifetime uses of hallucinogens, medical indications that excluded the use of study medications, use of exclusionary medications, and current treatment of alcohol use disorder. Participants, in this trial, a study pharmacist randomized 95 patients to treatment with psilocybin, being 49 of those patients, versus what they did as the control, which was diphenhydramine for 46 patients. A little bit more about how the study was designed. So it was a double-blind 
randomized clinical trials conducted at New York University Grossman School of Medicine and the University of New Mexico Health Science Center. Participants were recruited between March 2014 and March 2019. Participants were offered 12 weeks of manualized psychotherapy and were randomized to receive psilocybin versus diphenhydramine at two eight-hour medication sessions at week four and eight. The control group received 50 milligrams of diphenhydramine at the first session and 100 milligrams of diphenhydramine at the second session. The experimental group received 25 milligrams per 70 kilograms of psilocybin at the first session. And at the second session, they did this thing called the Panky Richards Mystical Experience Questionnaire. And this determined how susceptible you were to the psychedelic experience. And if you had a good response on the first session, you did have a dosage increase to 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms. But if you hit an inadequate response at the first session, they increased even further to 40 milligrams per 70 kilograms of the psilocybin. All participants were offered a total of 12 psychotherapy sessions from a team of two therapists, including a licensed psychiatrist, four sessions prior to the first medication session, four sessions between session one and two of medication administration, and four sessions after the second medication administration session. Sessions were including things like cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing, and they had assessments performed in patients at week 0, 4, 5, 8, 9, 12, 24, and 36. This is pretty intense. You had to go through a lot to be in this study. Yeah, I think it was kind of cool. They really kind of narrowed it down a little bit. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think in this study, they did kind of validate people's stories in terms of alcohol use, but this is just a tiny aside. It made me think of a, a bit of a discussion I've been seeing on social media with addiction researchers. When you're recruiting people for studies, there's a big incentive for people to kind of fabricate their histories so that they meet inclusion criteria for the study and that there are groups online where they pass around what are the inclusion criteria. They figure it out and they look at the study protocols ahead of time. And then they all share what are the inclusion criteria so people know how to say the right thing to get into these studies, either because they're paid for their time or let's say you might get free uh, psilocybin as part of the study. It just made me think, who signs up for this? You know, it's a lot of work to be in this study. It's interesting that, that the psilocybin community, there, there is so much of this online. I had no idea until I read this article. So many of these kind of like independent research institutes and independent research groups, it, it seems like there's a somewhat a degree of advocacy for this product, probably similar to kind of what we saw with kind of medical marijuana in the past couple decades. But it, it's interesting. So there's, there clearly is a, an interest group, which kind of probably guides a little bit of selection here. So the main measure here was the percentage of heavy drinking days assessed using a timeline follow-back interview contrasted between the two groups over the 32-week period following the first administration of study medication, and they used this multivariate repeat measure analysis of variance. They did secondary outcomes of things like percentage of drinking days, mean drinks per day, abstinence rates, who risk level, lack of heavy drinking days, reduction in WHO risk level, Hair and fingernail samples at week 24 to assess for ethyl glucuronide, which is basically a surrogate marker for alcohol use, sort of like an A1C for alcohol use for anyone who doesn't know what that test is. Short index of problems, so how much did drinking affect you at weeks 12, 24, and 36. There's a state of consciousness questionnaire at weeks 4 and 8. And they did blood pressure and heart rate at sessions at week 4 and 8, in addition to 
What I love most about this study was they did therapist and participant estimate of received medication at week four and eight. So both the participant and the therapist that worked with the participant had to guess what they received. They did this uh, statistical analysis via three-dimensional multivariate uh, repeat measure analysis of variance was how they calculated it. Any questions about the study design before I go through on what, what my perception of validity here? No, I mean, I appreciate that it's relatively simple. It's standard, double-blind, randomized, semi-placebo controlled trial looking with a clear outcome, which is number of heavy drinking days. So it's mercifully easy to understand what the question is. So yeah, did you think it was valid? Yeah. So in terms of like study funding, the first question, it was funded by the Hefner Research Institute, New York University Health and Hospitals Corporation, Clinical and Translational Science Institute, and actually also individual donations from Carrie and Claudia Turnbull, Efren Nullum, uh, Rodrigo Nino, and Cody Swift. And I, I did a brief kind of like Google stalking of these uh, people. And, and these um, people all are individuals that have kind of interest. They either have kind of like these third-party research groups into psilocybin, or they have kind of interest groups where they want to kind of expand access to this as a possible medical treatment for uh, different conditions. So they have like an invested interest. It wasn't just kind of a, a donor in their will. So the study was blind, and I put that in kind of quotes, uh, mostly because the <clears throat> participants correctly guessed the drug that they received uh, 93.6% of the times in the first session and 94.7% of the time in the second session. So the, the, the participants, while they were blinded, and I appreciate that the author of this study and uh, the trial design really tried their best to do a placebo that it didn't really fool them. People that took a psychedelic like psilocybin Overwhelmingly, 93.6% and 94.7% of the time, they knew that they were getting the active medication, not the control. And the therapist correctly guessed the drug intervention 92.4% of the time on the first session and 97.4% on the second session. So, you know, I think most people, I guess, can also observe the effects of a psychedelic versus Benadryl. So they really tried here, but it wasn't really something that they were able to do 100%, which is part of the, the difficulty with, with psychedelic research. The sample size was small at 95 participants. They really tried to do a larger sample size, but what happened was COVID-19, once again, is another casualty of this. So they had to basically prematurely discontinue recruitments. They didn't get the sample size they were looking for initially, which was about double that. Due to low sample size, there's not enough power to do subgroup analysis of these patients. 32-week follow-up was actually pretty good. 88 of 95 participants, which was 92.6%, completed 32 weeks of follow-up. And 93 out of 95, which is 97.8% of participants, received at least one dose of the study drug and were included in analysis for this trial. Valid drinking data was obtained for 717 out of 744 months, so that's 96.4%. They had objective ethylglucuronide results available for 50 out of 93 participants. That was 53.8%. Long-term data regarding outcomes of psilocybin use in the study participants was limited to the 32 weeks of the trial. So nothing beyond 32 weeks was obtained. Thoughts about the validity, Sonia? Yeah, I guess I wonder why, because they have such good follow-up with their interviews, why they had such bad follow-up with the objective results. I wonder if it was COVID, patients didn't want to come in for visits to get the hair or fingernail sample, maybe. I wonder why they had such low uptake on that. The other thing that was interesting to me was that patients stuck it out to do all the sessions, even if they were 
getting placebo, I would think some of the Benadryl people would drop out after their first session when they realized they were getting placebo medication. And I mean, yeah, some did, but you know, I, I, a lot of patients really stuck it out. So that was pretty good. I think it was valid. You know, again, a simple question, easy to understand. And I know you said 95 was smaller than they wanted, but to me, that seems pretty big. I mean, almost 100 people, not an insignificant number at all. Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe I'm being critical. I think we're just so used to seeing these. The last article reviewed was, I think, several hundred thousand people in it. So, you know, these kind of big databases. It seems like it alternates back and forth with addiction research. So uh, kind of what are the results? A little bit about the baseline demographics of these patients. So they were, for the most part, kind of middle age. So the average age was 45.78 years. Most of them were non-Hispanic white, so that was 75%. In terms of drinks per day and drinks per drinking day, you know, they averaged about 4.78 drinks per day throughout the baseline demographic. And uh, drinks per drinking day, when they actually did drink, it averaged out to about 7.1. So, you know, that's kind of a, that's not a healthy level of drinking, but certainly not kind of the highest level, even in some of my patients that don't identify as having alcohol use. Interestingly, I thought they did this WHO risk stratification, which stratifies patients into low, moderate, high, or very high drinking. And that's based upon the number of grams of alcohol, with the highest being you know, greater than 100 grams, and then kind of the first category being between zero to 40. And just for a reminder, they consider 14 grams of alcohol a standard drink. So that basically puts you anywhere from like two to three drinks up to the max is 10 drinks. And there's actually a relatively even distribution of those groups in this trial. So in terms of the low uh, drinking group, um, there was 12 participants and the moderate 21, the high 32, and the very high 30. So to kind of give you like a background, 31.6% drank more than 10 drinks in this, which I think that's, there's lots of people with kind of alcohol use disorder that kind of consume higher than that. At least a lot of us have that perception. So it's kind of interesting that it was relatively distributed in that regard. So participants completed a mean of 11.75 weeks of treatment in the psilocybin group compared to 11.47 weeks in the diphenhydramine group. So a little bit more dropout in the diphenhydramine group. 89.6% of participants treated with psilocybin and 77.8% of participants treated with diphenhydramine received a second double-blind medication session, so further drop-off in the diphenhydramine group between session one and two. These are people, they knew they got Benadryl. Maybe they just enjoyed the intensive psychotherapy and wanted to continue in the study, but you know you got a dose of Benadryl. Maybe Maybe the dose of Benadryl was relaxing too, you know? I mean, that makes sense. We do use it sometimes in the hospital for that exact method, you know. In the second psilocybin session, one out of 43 participants received the same dose. So they had 25 milligrams. And the reason you would receive the same dose is because they had like an adverse event in the first one. And it was kind of an anxiety attack from reading the the footnotes. 27 out of 43 received an increase of the 30 milligrams per 70 kilogram dose. So that meant based upon the questionnaire, 27 out of 43 had a good response to the first session in terms of an experience. And 15 out of 43 patients received the highest dose, the 40 milligrams per kilogram. So 15 out of 43 didn't get a good response in terms of experience with the first session. Drinking outcomes was obtained for 717 out of 744 months, which is 96.4% in the eight-month follow-up period of the 93 participants receiving treatment. You know, the, the one objective data point was this ethyl glucuronide results, and it was available only for 50 of the 93 participants, which was 53.8%. 
And at weeks 24, this actually correlated 100% with the 14 patients reporting absence. So I think the one thing that I took away from this objective measure is that, you know, when it was obtained, it correlated that actually the report really did correlate well, especially for people reporting total abstinence. And as we talked before, the blind participants correctly guessed the drug 93.6% of the time in the first session, 94.7% in the second, and the therapist 92.4% in the first session and 97.4% in the uh, second session. Yeah, I thought it was pretty, pretty good results. I, I was very happy with the 100% correlation between the subjective reports and the objective findings on the glucuronide testing. I thought that was really good. I'm glad they did that. So I went a little out of order for kind of like results going forward. But I guess the first question I always have it kind of as like a physician is, you know, do no harm. So safety data points kind of bringing them up first. So interestingly, 204 adverse events occurred during this trial, 119 in the psilocybin group and 85 in the diphenhydramine group. In the psilocybin group, headache was the most common side effect and 21 out of 48 participants. So that's 43.8%. Anxiety requiring a medical intervention occurred in two out of 48 participants. That's 4.2% of patients. And that was like got some Ativan and had to kind of be talked down because of the experience. Passive SI occurred in one out of 48 participants. So that's 2.1%. There was no cases of persistent disturbances suggestive of psychosis or hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder in this one. So that's kind of the big one I think a lot of us worry about. Out of the 85 in the diphenhydramine group, interestingly, all serious events occurred in the diphenhydramine group, not in the psilocybin group. And really, when you look at it, their complications of ongoing alcohol use is what occurred as what they're counted as the serious events occurring. So two cases of psychiatric admission due to suicidal ideation during an active binge drinking episode in the diphenhydramine group. And there was one patient admitted for Mallory Weiss tears requiring hospitalization during a binge drinking episode. So all serious events were in the diphenhydramine group from this trial, and they were all due to active binge drinking episodes. Well, right. So you can't claim it's the diphenhydramine itself, but since it didn't help you stop drinking, that group did come to more harm, it looks like. No, I, I don't think it's the diphenhydramine, right? It's. It, I think it, it's the act of drinking is the problem. So it's not the, it's not the, I guess the takeaway point is probably, I mean, you can't say without doing its own trial, but it's probably not the diphenhydramine. It's probably the lack of treatment that, that has these people with adverse effect. Well, right. Yeah, certainly not the diphenhydramine itself, but being in that group means your alcohol use disorder is not being treated. So it's sort of like the, it's the concept that you could do harm to your patients by doing nothing. You know, we hate to do something that causes harm, but sometimes we forget that by doing nothing, we can also cause harm. That's maybe what we're seeing in that group, although it's a very small number, so not too many, fortunately. So kind of going into their primary endpoints, interestingly, everyone kind of improved in this trial. And what, what you saw is actually in both groups, the biggest bang for your buck was really leading up to the first session. So, you know, there were substantial decreases in percentage of heavy drinking days, percentage of drinking days, and mean drinks per day between the initial screening and the initial intervention at week four. So there was 32.3% and 27.26% decrease in percentage of heavy drinking days decreased prior to the administration of every any drug. So this just shows you that kind of like good old bread and butter counseling and behavioral health have a huge impact in patients with alcohol use disorder and decreasing drinking. So that occurred right out of the gate before you even got into the intervention group. 
During weeks 5 to 35, participants receiving the psilocybin-assisted treatment, they actually had statistically significant lower percentage heavy drinking days than those receiving diphenhydramine. So their percentage of heavy drinking days was 9.71% in the psilocybin group versus 23.57% in the diphenhydramine group. So it was a difference of a 13.86% reduction. What do you think of that, Sonia? Well, it's not a huge difference. You know, it's, it's visible. You can definitely see a difference, but it's not a make or break kind of difference. And like you, I was definitely impressed by the initial improvement, likely based on the psychotherapy component and also just signing up for such an intensive 12-week treatment program regarding alcohol use disorder. I think people often are very motivated at the beginning of a new treatment program, do well initially, and it looks like a lot of people just really dropped from, you know, number of heavy drinking days down to a much lower level. And there they kind of stayed for the duration of the study. So I won't argue that the, the psilocybin didn't make a difference. It definitely helped, but it wasn't such a dramatic difference from a clinical standpoint. Kind of going further with what they call like dichotomous outcomes. They looked at like things like abstinence, heavy drinking. And then did you have a decrease in your WHO level? Did you decrease by one, two or three levels? You know, the things that really came up here that was like the most significant is one is in terms of kind of no heavy drinking days whatsoever, there was a substantial change between weeks 5 to 36 and weeks 33 to 36 in patients treated with psilocybin versus diphenhydramine. You know, no heavy drinking occurred in uh, 16 patients receiving psilocybin versus only five that were receiving diphenhydramine in the first part of that study with a number needed to treat of 4.5. And then the second part from weeks 33 to 36, the tail end of the trial 30 patients in the psilocybin group had no heavy drinking, while 18 in the diphenhydramine had no heavy drinking. In terms of decreasing your WHO level, really the one that came the most statistically significant was a two-level decrease in patients. So there was a substantial level, a two-level decrease in patients receiving psilocybin versus diphenhydramine with 29 patients in the psilocybin group versus 18 patients in the diphenhydramine group dropping two levels in that alcohol consumption grid that we talked about before, which was statistically significant. You know, decreasing your volume of drinking is useful, but you also look at how does this affect your life? And, you know, they did look at that short index of problem score and patients treated with psilocybin also showed a moderate to large reduction in several categories of drinking related problems at week 24 and 36 with a score of 6.59 versus 13 at week 36 and those treated with psilocybin versus diphenhydramine. So basically a, a substantial reduction there in terms of how drinking affects your life. Well, that's good. I mean, that's, that's like you said, that's the most important is how is the drinking actually affecting you compared to how many drinks, just a, a raw number. I also appreciate that the authors included number needed to treat in this paper. That's like our favorite clinical statistic. So thank you guys for uh, putting that in your paper. And so the question always comes down, like we talked about before, will this result help me in patient care? You know, I'm a primary care physician and I, I practice addiction medicine. And it's interesting, my patients that kind of identify as having addiction and even those that don't that have other kind of socially acceptable vices like smoking, I often do get questions about psilocybin. I think it's probably a lot of it due to the proximity to Johns Hopkins, where they have a large psychedelic and consciousness research center that kind of actively enrolls participants in these trials. So I think that's part of it kind of locally. There's a lot of interest in it. 
I'll be honest with you, until I read this article, I didn't have a lot of information as to kind of the mechanism and kind of how it was being used for treatment. So I think it's kind of useful to have that. The takeaways I have from this paper is it's an interesting idea that I think we need a lot more research in. Although understanding the mechanism here that it makes you kind of more susceptible to psychosocial counseling and like cognitive behavioral therapy, and it makes you somewhat more suggestible. It's interesting to me that really it's, it's the medicine's helping, but really what's doing the work is the, the other things that I do routinely recommend to patients. And I think I do get a little resistance at time to go to behavioral health for kind of counseling regarding drinking or tobacco use. People want like a pill or a quick fix. And I think even explaining to them that these treatments are kind of tagged with therapy, I think will be helpful for patients to possibly engage in that aspect. So I think from that regard, it, it will help my patient care. I'm not kind of quite yet ready to, to, to recommend this for patients, but I think it's definitely something I look forward to hearing a lot more about. I just think, you know, similar to medical marijuana, the use of psychedelics is going to just far outstrip our research on psychedelics you know, already they're being decriminalized in different places in the U.S. And while, you know, psychedelics are intoxicating, they haven't really been able to pin a huge number of harms on them. So I suspect they will become more widely available and patients are just going to use them the way they want to use them. You know, this whole 12 weeks of intensive therapy with guided sessions from two tag-teaming licensed psychologists or psychiatrists, I mean that's going to be the small minority of patients, you know, get that treatment. I mean, you and I were speaking earlier, you can't even get basic, you know, therapy, basic CBT about, you know, depression in our area for patients, let alone this sort of complex psychedelic influenced, you know, guided imagery therapy. So I just don't think this protocol is going to be widely available. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. Like you're right. I would also love to see a cost analysis of this. It seemed very intense. Well, right. It's very intense. And a cost analysis of this compared to a standard course of, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy focused on reducing alcohol use. So you want to do some talk back about our previous episodes? I sure do. Thank you so much for presenting that article, though. I'm glad we have it because there definitely are going to be questions about psilocybin moving forward. So... Yes, we definitely got some comments that I wanted to share with our listeners. The first one was a really interesting email from a Dr. Carlos Torres, and it was in regards to episode three regarding opioid tapering. And he described his experience as a new primary care doc taking over a patient panel. I'm going to quote him. He said, I inherited a panel of about 2,000 patients. I calculated that a good 30 to 40 percent of them were on some sort of chronic controlled substance, mostly opioids, benzos, stimulants, soma, or all four at the same time. For an entire year, my practice was a battleground, counseling patients and tapering them from wildly inappropriate substances in gigantic doses. So Dr. Torres, I just want to tell you that I have been there too. I think anyone who entered primary care between 2005 and 2015 really had the same experience you did. For me, it basically almost ruined being a primary care doctor. You know, in New Jersey, where I did residency at my program, at least residents didn't write controlled substances in the outpatient setting. The attendings wrote all those scripts and we were kind of left out of the loop. And there wasn't this culture of chronic controlled substances at the clinic where I did my residency practice. So I was very unused to it. And when I came to practice in Pennsylvania, of course, you get a bunch of patients all at once who are seeking a new doctor for some reason. 
you don't know how to manage them. They're on wildly inappropriate medications. And then they yell at you, berate you, storm out, you know, get angry. And it's just, it makes primary care sort of no fun. Those experiences really dominate. So I definitely feel you. John, did you have that experience when you joined your first practice? Yes, very much so. I think that's actually kind of how I kind of evolved into a, a practice. Like, I think we've talked before, I'm a primary care doctor and I see adults and children. And I do inpatient and outpatient. And I never did any kind of addiction medicine training in my residency before. And I came here and I was a new doctor, opened to new patients, a, a doctor with heavy prescribing closed, and I got flooded. And I remember many, many hostile encounters. And, you know, there's one thing about like standing your ground that you're not going to prescribe something you're not comfortable with. But, you know, at the end of the day, you see that person walk out and you feel kind of bad for them. And that's kind of how I evolved. And I think at this point, my, my clinical practice is about 25% either kind of patients I'm actively treating for addiction or people in recovery that, you know, they seek me as like an ally or a friend. It's hard though. I think all of, I think anyone in primary care, the, the new doc is kind of always tested a little bit. So, they've got to kind of go through that almost like a hazing of a fraternity. Yeah. And it's not good morale. I mean, I think it's actually a better policy if you have a new doctor coming onto your practice to protect them from that, you know, allow them to not necessarily take on those patients or protect them within their practice from patient panels that are particularly difficult because you don't want your new docs to burn out too quickly. Um, Another comment, We got an email from Stephen Kennedy about our very first episode, which was about the cardiovascular effects of alcohol. Stephen says, and I'm going to quote him here, genetic randomization is an example of what econometricians call instrumental variables. The key idea is that the instruments have no independent effect. In this case, the genetic conditions associated with more drinking have no direct effect on cardiac function or on other behaviors like exercising that might affect cardiac outcomes. I think that this would be a pretty strong assumption in the case of genetic differences unless the gene functions were very well understood. So Stephen, I definitely agree with you. I wanted to include this comment because I think I thought this, but I forgot to say it on the podcast. So I think the concept of Mendelian randomization is interesting, but I am not convinced we understand enough about the genetic components of something as complicated as alcohol use disorder and cardiovascular disease to be 100% sure that the two are genetically independent, no matter how hard the authors tried to create their genetic model with the two being independent. I just think there's no guarantee that that's the way things really are. So thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com. Talk to us on Twitter at AddictionMedJC. Message us on Facebook at AddictionMedJC also. Or even join our Facebook group and share your thoughts. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day. 